Future of Field Service podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Nicastro. Today, we're going to be talking about tips for successful onboarding, training, and retention. We know that with some of the challenges that exist in um, obtaining and training and retaining talent, these are topics that are, are very, very important to the vast majority of our listeners. Uh, I'm thrilled to be joined today by Bobby Lincoln, who is the Supervisor of Customer Care Onboarding at Sysmex America. Bobby, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So this is this is Bobby's area of expertise, and I'm excited to have him here with us today to you know give us some tactical advice on how to to have effective onboarding and training. You know, onboarding is obviously the very first impression a new employee gets of your company. Um, and with talent that today has many, many, many options on where they spend their time, it's a very important first impression. So, Bobby, before we dig into um, to some of the, the things we want to touch on today, just tell our listeners um, a bit about Sysmax, yourself, and your role. Thank you. Yes. Uh, my name is Bobby Lincoln. I, uh, Sarah said, I supervise customer care onboarding for Sysmex. Um, I'm also responsible for managing a group of field service technicians, which we'll discuss those later on um, this conversation. Uh, to, in brief, it's a national group of field service technicians that we hire. Um, to support districts as they get trained, do installations, and eventually move into a permanent service engineer role. But uh, I do supervise the onboarding process for everyone in the service organization. I've handled this responsibility for going on a little over a year and a half. So I've got pre-COVID and after COVID experience <laughs> going on. Um, I've been with Sysmex now on year 16 which uh, I hear is unheard of in modern world. Everybody switched mm -hmm. jobs from, uh, you know, every three or four years. But no, mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a lifer, as they say. Um, Sysmex is a uh, medical device company at its core. We're a Japanese-based company. We are the global leader in hematology diagnostics. Uh, we are now getting, uh, broadening our urinalysis portfolio. And... Um, yeah, it's been a wild ride. When I started with Sysmex, we were, I don't know the exact market share number, but over the course of the last decade and a half, it feels really weird saying that, by the way. Um, <laughs> we've become number one in the United States and the world. Awesome. Um, and I agree with you. I think uh, after 2020, everyone should have survived and led through COVID on their, on their resume. I mean, it's... Uh, it's a whole skill set in and of itself. Um, all right. So we're going to talk today about onboarding, training, and retention. And, and I kind of lumped them together in the introduction, but they are, are really three different um, and three very critical areas. So let's take them one by one. Uh, so, so we'll talk about onboarding first. Um, so to start, just tell us a little bit about what your onboarding process looks like. Well, I would like to discuss because it has morphed over the last year. Mm -hmm. um, Pre-COVID, like I said, we would have, we, we'd spend interview and we spend a lot of time on the interview process, which I anticipate most other organizations do as well. Mm -hmm. um, 
we would come into the office and our, our United States office is located. We have this couple now, actually. Um, but we send everybody to Lincolnshire, Illinois, northwest Chicago. And we'd come in and we'd spend day one just getting to know each other. Um, and then throughout the course of the week, we'd have different presentations, um, discussions. We would do a tour of the building. We'd literally get to meet the CEO if he was in the in his office that week, which is pretty cool. Not a lot of people on day three don't get to meet the CEO of their organization. Uh, but the really the big thing about our onboarding process is the goal is two things. We want to acclimate our new employees to our organizations, or better yet, our culture. Mm-hmm. Culture's big from where, where we are. Um, also, there is a few you know things that we have to hit, certain metrics that every employee needs to go through, and all the corporate things, the human resources presentations, all of those things that we, uh, uh, this many, if not all, or corporations put their new employees through. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one of the big areas of emphasis for you is making the onboarding experience personal. So why, why is this something that's so heavily prioritized? And I guess more importantly, what are some of the ways that you accomplish that? As I was thinking about this, you know, the two quotes come to mind. I'm a big quote guy, drives mm-hmm. my wife crazy sometimes. But, <laughs> you know, you think of the Godfather quote, it's not business or it's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. Mm-hmm. Well, I like to subscribe to, you know, he's a buffoon in many ways, but I like to subscribe to the Michael Scott version of business. And I wrote it down to make sure in case, you know, our listeners don't quote me as saying it wrong. So I did write it down where he says, business is always personal. It's the most personal thing in the world. And you fast forward a little bit in that episode and he goes, people will never go out of business. Mm-hmm. And I really subscribe to that. We subscribe to that at Sysmex. We believe we are in the people business. Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't we make it personal? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we hire folks to come in as service engineers. We hire them to do a technical job, but at the end of the day, that's only part of it. You know, mm-hmm. our customers are going to require some fixing as well. You mm-hmm. know, so we spend a lot of time on making it personal to welcome them to our family. Mm-hmm. It's really a family. That's our view. That's how we approach it. And you know, when you bring someone into your family, Sarah, you've probably you know, you've probably had folks sit down at your dinner table before and be like, I don't know. I don't know. We spend a lot of time on the front end so that when we bring folks in. Uh, they they fit into our family and we want to acclimate them to uh, that culture. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so when they start the onboarding process, um, do you have any, any examples of, of things that you guys do to make, make it feel personal to them so that it's not just, you know, employee one, two, three on in, in onboarding session number, you know, whatever. Um what are what are some tips around creating a more personalized experience for those folks? You know, I guess I, I, so much of this conversation, uh, I'm going to tailor it more to where we are right now, mm-hmm. virtually, because in the office when when I would host this this onboarding process, it's it's similar but it's different. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so for example, we we log in on day one, everybody comes in and um, I intentionally start our meetings about 15, 20 minutes before all the 
all, all the production starts, if you will. We get to know each other. Um, one of the fun things that we do um, during this process is every single class, we challenge them with icebreaker questions. And it's no fancy science behind it. I literally say, go to Google and type in icebreaker questions. Uh, for example, one of them was, what superhero would you want to be and why? Mm -hmm. My personal favorite is if you could upload one skill to yourself via the matrix, mm -hmm. if you could become Neo about anything, what would it be? Mm -hmm. You know, and we challenge them and talk to them. It just naturally generates conversation. And you know, to make it personal, it's, this might sound crazy to some out there, but I want to create the environment of we're sitting around the dinner table where you feel virtually comfortable talking to anyone at that table. That's mm -hmm. the atmosphere that we hope to create in our onboarding process. Yeah. Now I have to assume, you know, being successful at that is more challenging in a virtual environment than it is in person. It is especially challenging for people like myself that when I give presentations, I, I'm, I feed off the room. Mm -hmm. I love the energy in the room. You, you can look and see. It's harder, I think, especially using certain platforms where now our new hire classes range anywhere from four to eight individuals. Mm -hmm. um, seeing them on a screen is, you know, reading their faces for how they're receiving the information is way more difficult this way. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're in the room, you can, you can see it and feel it this way. Right. You, you kind of have to, I don't want to say put on more of a show, but make it a little more entertaining, if you will. Mm -hmm. And, and that's how I have, I, I've seen it work very well thus far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, not everyone can control, I guess, size of onboarding class. Um, but when you're doing it virtual, I think, you know, considering how many people you have in a group is important because if it's still not as easy as reading the room in person, but if you have to keep an eye on, you know, four or six or even eight individuals, energies and reactions on screen, you know, is, is one thing if you were doing a class of 20 or 25 or, you know, any more than that, it, it would become very difficult to give anyone that, that individualized attention. Um, we had, um, uh, this was right before COVID had last year, uh, the November prior, we are, we had a class of 18 people mm -hmm. in our, in our, in our room. There's no way we can do that in this format. In fact, we, right. we have made the decision based on occupancy levels of the buildings of local, uh, in Illinois of what they allow our new hire classes can only be a certain size because of the, the, the restrictions that we have at our training center down the line. Mm -hmm. So we, we have more frequent classes, but they're smaller. Yeah. Which, you know, in, in the process you, um, you walked us through in terms of how you try and create more of that dinner table dialogue and, and, you know, really get people engaged. You know, if you have four or six people, um, you know, that type of interaction is, is feasible, um, and, and easy to encourage, right. You know, if you don't want them to be able to hide, hide behind the numbers, I guess. Um, okay. Yeah. And I have folks that work with me. We, we have people throughout the organization that come in and help. And we always have, um, one of the new hires They're one of their direct managers is tasked to, to assist with the process. 
And a lot of times, depending upon the presentation where I've got two or three screens going, they get tasked with uh, monitoring faces. That's their job. Mm -hmm. They got to mm -hmm. make sure the room's awake. Nobody's falling asleep. That right. sort of thing. Yep. It's important. It is. Um, okay. So, so you, you mentioned this a little bit, but mm -hmm. you know, you have these folks come in and you, um, how long is the onboarding program? Uh, we, we have it broken down into three segments. It's an onboarding week, which they spend day one that first week. That's onboarding. That's where we have human resources. We briefly, we briefly get into anything technical in week one. It's a lot of application building, giving them the tools. Hey, this is what you use this for. This is what you use this for, that sort of thing. Week two is our foundational class where we dive deeper into various processes and then they get put into our technical training curriculum. Okay. So um, I like the one thing you said though about, you know, the goal is in onboarding for them to have a foundational understanding, but not an overwhelming amount of detail. Um, so, so you want to kind of, you know, give them the critical overview uh, that they need to be able to move into the training program, but you don't want to overwhelm them with, with too much at once. So talk about why you think that that concept is important when it comes to onboarding. Absolutely. Are you a sports fan? Do you like the foot? Do you like football? Um, yes, I have um, given up watching football since I had children so that my husband can do so because it's, it's, it's one or the other, not both. <laughs> I get the television. I've got three children and uh, I get daddy gets TV on Sundays. That's mm -hmm. it. Four months of the year. Daddy gets TV on Sunday. But I liken our training program to. All right. On day one of training camp. Mm -hmm. If you were to give your quarterback the entire playbook on day one. There is no way they could we could have the expectation that they could accurately and precisely execute that playbook in its entirety after that day. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. You know, as if I could upload a skill like talked earlier, I would do that. But we can't. You know, we're mm -hmm. human beings. We have to absorb information, learn it and implement it. And so I, I liken how we approach training to that. We have a certain progression. Right. Once you can do A, let's do B. Mm -hmm. Once you can do B, let's challenge you with C. That's the goal. Because if mm -hmm. we overwhelm individuals on the front end, they're going to get burnt out. Um, we're all human beings. When we get burnt out, we don't like what we do. Mm -hmm. I don't want that. I never want anybody to feel uh, that overwhelming burnt out where they just want to quit. That's, mm -hmm. you know, that that's any manager, anybody in charge of any program should not want that for their folks. Mm -hmm. But it's it's step by step, and it's I, I liken it to the NFL playbook. You cannot expect them to do everything on day one. You have to work in in steps. Mm -hmm. Now, have you seen a difference, Bobby, in terms of um, I guess bandwidth for consumption? Um, is that different in person versus virtual? So pre and and post COVID, and how has that how has that changed? Um, I think in person, I can connect and get more information through in a shorter amount of time. This, this platform allows, it's just too much distraction. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm looking outside my house right now. I've got, you know, my kitchen there. I've got to say no to all the snacks that are there or, you know, the phone might ring or 
you know, we have, yeah. I've, I've had folks where their kids are home. My kids have been home. It's challenging right now. It really right. is. Yeah. And I mean, you get the, the zoom burnout, right? So, I mean, when you're doing onboarding in, in a physical location, you know, you can say, okay, we're going to do the first two hours in this room and then we're going to move to this room and it, you know, you can change scenery, you can work in activities or breaks or, you know, what have you when it's, Hey, you know, show up for your eight hour day and we're going to spend the whole thing on zoom. And I'm just going to crush you with information. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you, you'll start to get blank stares after so long. So I think you, you've, I would think you've had to be strategic about how you pace things so that you can keep people engaged as well. Absolutely. We've had, um, we've had a certain strategy for onboarding for the last six, seven years. And it just, we knew it day one, day two, day three, and so on with this format we we've rearranged it because we don't want to overload their brain on information on one day because by three o'clock in the afternoon you can see it mm -hmm. they're they're done uh we only really schedule out of the five days for week one we're on zoom half days on three of those days mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so we give them more autonomy to to do some of the you know the corporate training stuff that's online and the virtual training that we have everyone do. We give them the time to do that and, and do it at their own pace because this, this is tough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about in terms of the onboarding experience is um, the emphasis that Sysmex puts on teaching the human side of the business in addition to the technical stuff. So Tell us a little bit about that conceptually and then in practice, how you balance that within the, um, the coursework. We understand that our customers are, because you know, we're in medical devices, that's what we do. Our instrumentation, our analyzers, they're, they're what our doctors and our healthcare workers use to save, to save lives. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, that's, who our customer is. It's not, it could be me. I don't want it to be me anytime soon, but I know that I will be a customer per se. You know, we, we, we work really hard to understand that at the end of the end result of our instrumentation is, is a human being. Mm -hmm. And you can't do this job effectively if you don't have a passion for people. You just can't. You can fix things. You can do a great job fixing that analyzer, but if you're not good with your customer, that personal side of it, that human side of it, it's just not going to work. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's a reason why we win so many awards year in and year out is because we focus on that. Mm -hmm. um, one of my favorite moments in this whole onboarding journey that I've been on, um, Cameron, if you ever listen to this, I'm calling you out. Uh, we were in, in training and going through what you know, our customer service model and how we approach it. And he raised his hand and he's like, I thought you hired me to fix instruments. All we've done is talk about people all day. Right. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. That's what we believe. We b firmly believe that if we take care of our customers and teach how to fix instruments, as well as down the road, making sure our employees are happy, it's just a natural circle of success. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, what are some of the the topics that you touch on in onboarding specifically when it comes to the human side 
So obviously you're touching on the technical side, but um, on this on this human element, what are some of the things that you, you know, start the conversation on in the in the onboarding process? We employ a model, and uh, I, I don't want to give away too many secrets, but we mm-hmm. work on human interaction, mm-hmm. specifically how to diffuse negative situations. Because mm-hmm. everybody listening to this that deals in service. Most calls from customers are not happy ones. There's sure. something that we need to fix, mm-hmm. um, something we need to resolve. Sometimes it's the instrument. Sometimes it's the person. It just it depends. And so mm-hmm. we spend a full day learning, teaching. And every time I've given this presentation, I've thought of something new or, or you know, uh, how, to, how to interact with people. You can use it in your personal life. And it really centers about around listening to others and having empathy for their situation. Mm-hmm. You know, and this, we, we have been doing this for, for many years and, um, we just believe that if we focus on the people and we listen and we acknowledge them and we hear them out and, um, you know, we can get to a successful resolution on both the technical side and the, and the personal side of things. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, you know, this is a, a topic that, um, is it comes up more and more in terms of the emphasis on soft skills and the need to focus on that in, you know, training and, and um, talent development, because we're really beyond a world in field service where mechanical or technical skills are all it takes to do the job, you know? So to your point, whether you're talking about a, you know, um, break fix type, service situation where you might have a a customer who's frustrated or upset or stressed out because they need resolution on that. Or whether you're talking about, you know, even um, more, you know, advanced services and what it takes in terms of relationship building and and being consultative and and being viewed as a trusted advisor, you know, on on any end of that spectrum, um, it becomes critical to, to have, you know, really good soft skills and people skills, um, and communication skills and relationship building skills, in addition to being able to fix whatever you're there to fix. Right. And I think that, um, you know, that trend in my opinion is only going to continue as we look at, you know, the automation of certain um, tasks, you know, using technology and and just the changing world of what service is demanding. I think that that those skills are only going to become more important. Yep. And and one of the the things that's really neat too, and it took me a while to, to kind of learn this when I was new in field service. My background is in clinical laboratory science. So I worked in a hospital lab for a little over four years and then moved into uh, field service. But you as someone in field service drive future sales more than you ever imagine. Right. It, I, I didn't realize that, you know, I just thought, Oh, our salesperson came in and did a fantastically good job. And they're like, we sell because of, of our team. And we've had customers that have been competitive takeaways, you know, they're, you know, let's give some props where it's due. Some of them, their engineers, they had such good relationships that they worried about what was going to happen to them and vice versa. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't want to, you know, if you're my service engineer, I'm like, what would happen to Sarah if, if we jumped ship? That's why mm-hmm. relationships are so important. It's so important all the way down the line. 
And that's why we start off with that because at the end of the day, it's business is the most personal thing in the world. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. So, so let's talk then about training. So the onboarding process happens and they go through the two weeks of, of initiation. um, And then they, they transition into the training program, right? Okay. So tell us what the, the training process is like at Sysmex. We spend a week on onboarding. They come in and we acclimate them to culture and build them up and talk a lot about the customer service side. That's week one. Week two is a foundational training. A lot of the tools that we set up week one, we learn how to use. Mm-hmm. We get involved in them. Uh, we do some uh, introductions to the various analyzers in our portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, what's really neat about that particular thing is it used to be an, an on-site demonstration or an on-site thing. Now it's virtual. We're doing this mm-hmm. virtual, and what's neat is we've used our various tools and we've got a, a world-class center for learning that does a live stream so they can live stream this class. It's, it's really neat to see. Uh, then we mix in, it becomes a mix of technical training on site and the classroom style teaching and on the job. And so our philosophy is let's get them in the field. Let's start learning who their customers are. Mm-hmm. Let's hook them up with folks on their team that we trust to be a good mentor. And then keep teaching. And it's a good six to eight month process to get through all of the various training that that we have. And even at that point, we're very upfront. Like we expect you're not going to feel comfortable until you're about 18 months to two years in this job. Mm-hmm. That's just normal. That's normal. Now there's everything is a is a bell curve. So there's some on the front end, some on the back end. But for the majority, um, about 18 to, to two years. 18 months to two years is a fully functioning service engineer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I, I know you touched on this earlier when we talked about the, the football um, playbook analogy, but, but talk again about in, in within that six to eight month training program, how you sort of phase in work because from what I'm understanding, you do that in sort of an individualized way. So it's you expand on um, tasks as they become ready for more challenges. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, we, we don't want to take somebody two weeks into the job and say, here, go walk into the Mayo Clinic and fix their, their instrumentation. Yeah, that's not fair. That's obviously not fair for our customer, and it's not setting anyone up for success. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is a now. There's a an unwritten number of time or a tenure with which we gauge. Like, okay, they, we we have to. It's like any job; you have to be able to to check the boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, some people check them faster, some check them a little slower. But it's really a it's a relationship. Training is absolutely a relationship mm-hmm. between our Center for Learning that gives feedback on the individual. The individual has to take ownership and perform, and then their direct manager has to navigate them through the their journey of training to start saying, okay, you know what? Bobby's ready to go out and do some preventative maintenance. Let's give mm-hmm. it a shot. Go ahead. You have all day to get that done, and we see how it does. Or an installation, for example, like we know a certain analyzer takes a certain number of days on average to fix, or to, excuse mm-hmm. me, 
to install. Let's see how they do. Get them out there in the real world. You know, we can train, 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 but eventually you've got to go out on the field and play the game. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it is, it's, it's, it's incremental for a reason because we want to build knowledge. We want to provide information and then start seeing how the performance is. Mm-hmm. So you build from, from really simple tasks to harder tasks, both to build their knowledge and expertise and also to pro- protect the customer experience, obviously. Like you said, not having someone brand new go into to Mayo Clinic to do this job. And then you pair them with mentors. And and how do you determine, does everyone have a mentor? Or do, like, how does the mentor process work? Oh, in a perfect world, we'd all have assigned mentors and that sort of thing. Um, what's really neat about how our districts are structured is we have entry-level folks all the way up to high-performing award winners. Mm-hmm. And each team, you know, within your own organization, Sarah, you probably have somebody that doesn't have a mentor next to their job description, but you know that you would send someone to work with them. That's, mm-hmm. that's our mentality. We know if someone needs some technical training within our group, we know who to send them to. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in the field, I was what we call our lead service engineer, which was uh, directly below our district service manager. And I focused a lot on customer skills, administration type things. Um, technically, I was never the best at it. I'm a solid B plus, <laughs> solid B plus technically. But I excelled where my I was really high performing on the customer side of things. Mm-hmm. And so. I would mentor our new folks in that regard. So mm-hmm. it's more of a, you know, in the world of unlimited budgets, we'd have this fancy, fancy mentoring program. I'm sure everyone listening would, would love to have that sort of thing. But the, mm-hmm. the real world is we know who we can trust. We mm-hmm. go to those people. And just because of the type of culture we have, they want to see their teammate do well. Because that mm-hmm. makes their job easier. It makes the customer's experience better. So it's a it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, how do you sort of monitor performance throughout training to determine, I guess, both when to add new duties um, to, to folks and then also when they're ready to sort of graduate from training? There are some official documents that we have that are designed to lead a manager to gauge their um, service engineer's performance. Mm-hmm. You know, so there are some some boxes they have to check. But I can't look at a team in California and say, you know, if I'm not working with them day to day, like I focus on my team, I know what I should expect from people as they as they progress. Um, uh, I'm not dodging the question. That's just the honest answer is we don't, mm-hmm. it's not something that's, they have to do this. They have to do that. I mean, they have to obviously, but mm-hmm. it's more of, um, you just know it, you know, it's like watching your kid learn how to ride their bike. You know, they go for a few feet, they go for a few feet and all of a sudden they're riding down the street and you're like, Hey, where'd you go? You know, they, they pick mm-hmm. it up, you know, you know, it's a right. feeling and, and that's, the mentality that we have, we know when our service engineers are ready, you, you can just tell. And um, we, we introduce them based off of the, the maintenance tasks to installations to the full-blown troubleshooting job that it is. 
Mm -hmm. So when they're ready to graduate, what happens next? Oh, we throw them a big party. We send them out to dinner and the CEO gives them gift cards. Uh, we have this really neat, and well, it's like I said, pre-COVID, we had a full graduation week, which mm -hmm. was really neat. So they would, they would come in and there would be specific, but we would bug the analyzers in the training department and they mm -hmm. had to fix it. They had to go in and pretend that our technical trainer was the customer. We'd have to go through the entire experience and they had to do it unsupervised, using only their team, their tools, the resources that they had. And at the end of the week, it was, you know, you, you get a little certificate and, you know, we, we do, I wasn't joking. We would have a very nice dinner and celebrate. And uh, mm -hmm. because it really is a journey, it's something that we should celebrate. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, I just recently finished a master's degree not that long ago. And Congratulations. darn it. Thank, thank you. Thank you. I went out for Baltimore's best crab cake and celebrate it. It's fantastic. So you, you should celebrate your successes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that makes them feel acknowledged for their hard work and, and appreciated. Um, now, when they graduate from training, this is going to kind of segue us into, into what happens next. But what what's sort of the, the path from training on? Then you are, um, you get, so onboarding, we're going to acclimate you into the company culture. Mm -hmm. From there on out, it's a slow acclimation into your specific territory, your customer base, that sort of thing. You know, like mm -hmm. a, once training is done, then you're going to be on your own more. You're going to slowly get your own territory. And as you perform and as you're, successes begin to mount and you prove that you can indeed do this job, then we're going to continue to expand it until we get to where we consider a, um, a fully, not fully functional. That's not the right word. Um, we have a certain number of like designated instruments that each engineer is expected to um, service and carry and maintain that sort of thing. So a full mm -hmm. workload, if you will. Mm -hmm. Okay. So after training, um, they come into your team, right? As a, as a field technician, that's what you referenced earlier in terms of the team that you manage. Yeah. So we've got the entry, we have two levels of, of entry into our service organization. Mm -hmm. The one is a entry level position. It's what we call our field service technician. And I'll use mm -hmm. the acronym FST. Mm -hmm. uh, the other way is the service engineer what y'all call the SE. So the FST, the field service technician, is an entry-level position. These are folks, when I'm hiring for them, I'm looking for um, fresh out of college graduate. Mm -hmm. um, folks that are want to get into field service. Like right now, my team, I've, I've hired people that had previous experience. I had somebody that had no experience in field service. They had an electronics degree, uh, clinical lab folks shout out to all the med techs in the room um i have someone that went to college for sales that's mm -hmm. on my service team so we really have a broad scope of individuals that we look at for the fst position mm -hmm. um, the next transition to that is service engineer so i like to describe it to use another sports analogy the fst is almost like the minor leagues mm -hmm. so when a service engineer position arises anywhere in the country that the, my team, my pool of FSTs will be the first place that we look at for, Hey, we've got an opening in Baltimore. 
which is right down the street from where I live. Mm-hmm. We have an opening in Baltimore. Are there any FSTs before we look at, you know, we obviously open up a job rec, but, you know, we have folks that are trained, that are yeah. ready to go, that can graduate, if you will, into that promotion of a service engineer. But we also hire directly into that role based on experience. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like your farm team. Just trying, just trying to keep the sports analogies. <laughs> I'm doing my best, Bobby. Okay. All right. So, so I can see how that benefits, um, Sysmax, right? So now we're kind of talking about, well, a few different things. I mean, I I think that, that, um, if you listen back to some of the podcasts that we've recorded on the topics of sort of, you know, retention and, and talent and, and things like that, you know, we've had a number of conversations about the fact that, you know, if your only strategy is to hire based on experience and you think that you can continue to do that indefinitely, you know, you're, you're mistaken because you're just going to run out of it. Right. So this idea of, you know, I like the examples you gave of all of the different backgrounds you have in your, in your pool of folks right now. Right. So they don't have to have that experience, but they have an interest, they have an aptitude, they have some abilities to develop in, in this role. And you bring them on at, at that, at that level and, and you work with them to develop all of the experience they would ultimately need to do that, that SE role. Um, so I think that's a really smart approach from the Sysmex perspective um, because you're, you're giving yourself, um, a source of talent, you know, by kind of working a step or two back in the value chain, rather than just expecting to be able to hire people that have done the job for X amount of time. Um, but you know, the flip side of that is it, it gives an opportunity to foray into field service for folks that, that wouldn't, have the opportunity to join Sysmax if they didn't have that experience. So, you know, as you're sort of bringing these people into the fold, um, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, how an organization can kind of structure and offer that career progression and why that's important when you're hiring, you know, younger people. Oh gosh, my immediate response would be who wouldn't want to go to work for an organization where they didn't have the opportunity to advance? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I certainly wouldn't want to go into a role that had no opportunity for growth or advancement. Or mm-hmm. uh, There are people that do. God bless them. There are people that, that are looking for the 7 to 3.30 punch in, punch out, and that's, a, mm-hmm. that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the younger workforce that we have coming out of college, um, there's a few things. There's a, they want to make an impact. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to make an impact. How does what I do today affect somebody tomorrow? Mm -hmm. Um, What's really cool about this particular job is in field service in, uh, in healthcare in general, especially now is, you know, I've taken instruments out of laboratories that had somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 million cycles through them. That's mm-hmm. 5 million people that I helped mm-hmm. indirectly, but I helped them. That's cool. I like that. Mm-hmm. That was neat. Um, what I really enjoy about what we do is we not only hire people with that are ambitious and fit into that culture. It is a culture. We look for folks that want to do that. 
one of my favorite questions asked on an interviewer is, are you looking for a job or are you looking for a career? Mm-hmm. And it's okay. You know, I want career people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have various levels of hierarchy within the service organization. So you start out as a, you, you, you know, as an FST or an SE, and then the natural progression is to the next level and up. And, and what's really fun about working at Sysmex, it's in our mission statement, by the way, uh, is we challenge each other. Mm-hmm. We challenge each other. So they, my boss will sit down with me and we'll say, he'll say, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? You know, you'd be reasonable. You don't say, I don't want to be CEO next week. That's not going to happen. But, mm-hmm. you know, I want to go here and here and here. And so we go, okay, well, here's how I can help you get there. Here's been my experience that got me to where I am. And so I like to do that with the folks that, that work for me is mm-hmm. I ask them, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? And that opportunity, just having the opportunity to work for an organization that provides that, that pushes it, that in some ways incentivizes that, along with the impact of knowing that my job every day is going to affect, uh, effectively save lives. Mm-hmm. What's well, not the love about it? Right. And those are good points. I mean, I think that, um, you know, in the conversations I've had with people about managing an older generation versus managing the younger generation, you know, those are a couple of key points. You know, one is I, I get your point, like I'm built the same way, like who would not want to progress in their career. But I mean, if you think about, you know, a lot of, a lot of tenured uh, field technicians historically, I mean, we're happy to do the same job for 20, 25, 30 years. And, and they didn't have that same, not, I I'm overgeneralizing. Some people do, some people don't, but I mean, if you look as a group at the older generation of, of field technicians, I think you had a greater likelihood of people being happy to just do their job. If, if it was a good job and not necessarily have that burning desire for you know, continual evolution. And I think that's something the the younger generation looks for in an employer. Um, and then your other point about, you know, playing to to the impact, right? And and you know, communicating the difference that that your employees are making in in lives um is something else that that has um some real appeal for folks. So what I like also too that we do, and it's not just even I had a conversation with someone who will just leave it as they're a seasoned service engineer. Mm-hmm. It's the PC way, right? We were having a conversation a couple weeks ago about you know him playing out the string, if you will. You know, what do I want to do? But yet he also called me to talk about how can I improve this specific process that my team manages. Mm-hmm. So even though we have people, you know, on the on the the twilight side of their career. It's still a constant. It's uh, there's no way to, to describe it other than you got to live it and feel it. We just uh, it, it's an innovative group that mm-hmm. we are. And whether you're day one or day or year thirty five, mm-hmm. it's really the same goal. And I think we do a good job of hiring the right people, but also protecting our culture of who we are that fosters that type of environment. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, okay. So 
In terms of your evolution from the medical lab to field service to um, heading up onboarding and managing a team of, of um, field service technicians, what's the biggest lesson you would say that you as a leader have learned? Oh, good grief. Um, don't expect me from you. Okay. That was a tough thing to learn moving from, um, from the moving into management, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a certain way of doing things. I have a long track record of performance of processes that I've particularly employed, ways I handle customers, way I talk to customers. Not everybody does that. And mm -hmm. so I learned very early on that I can't have my own expectations for my team. I can set them. I can put the bar. Here's where I want to be. Guys, here's where we are. Where we are. Here's how we're going to get there. But everybody's going to do it a little differently. And so for, for me personally, that was, that was one of the toughest lessons to, to learn and to step back. Um, you know, when you're in field service, you measure success very differently than you do in managing field service. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, every day you walk in, I fix that. I know it. I, I, I did that. Right. Mm -hmm. When you're working with people, it's different. It's a longer game. And, right. uh, um, so that, that's my biggest piece of advice for any new leader is don't expect you from other people. That makes sense. I like that. Um, any final thoughts or closing um, words of wisdom for you know our listeners on on the stuff we've talked about today? Onboarding, training, retention, anything related? The virtual nature of everything we do now, um, I have found the greatest success thus far has been uh, a couple things, and this might sound a little crazy because we're in corporate world, but when I say make this process entertaining, mm -hmm. make it entertaining. Mm -hmm. um, however, that needs to happen. Some things that we like to do is ask silly questions or play videos during, uh, I've restructured half of the week with entertainment in it, you know, click yeah. different YouTube things, you know, that sort of thing, just because I will, I will say Bobby and I were exchanging um, some messages real quick this morning on LinkedIn in preparation for our recording today. And um, at the end, you sent me a meme, you know, and it was, it was just such a little thing, but it made me laugh out loud. And, you know, it's a small example, but there, to me, after what we've been through, you know, as a, as a world in the last year, I mean, there is no reason to not introduce a bit more levity and, you know, just personal connection to exchanges. Um, so yeah. Make it fun. I mean, gosh, we're doing this for eight, nine, 10, 12 hours a day. Some of us, gosh, have fun. Life's too short. Have some fun mm -hmm. with it. Yes. That's a very good point. All right. Well, Bobby, thank you so much for, for joining today and for sharing. I really, really appreciate it um, and hope, uh, hope you will come back and visit us again soon. I would love to. This has been a blast. Let's do it again. Absolutely. You can check out more of our content by visiting us at www.futureoffieldservice.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn as well as Twitter at the Future of FS. 
The Future of Field Service podcast is published in partnership with IFS. You can learn more about IFS service management by visiting www.ifs.com. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you.